Great. Well, it's really great to be here. Um, I just left Boston, Massachusetts, where it was 34 degrees when I um, took off yesterday morning. So really happy to be down here amidst the warmth and hospitality of um, Florida. And uh, I know most of you are from Alabama, the great state. Um, so um, what we'll try to do in this next sort of 25 minutes, hopefully, um, is give an overview. I know many of you have been involved in hepatitis C treatment, but as you just heard, there are many of you just getting started. So uh, while we'll reinforce several of the concepts from this talk in the subsequent talk, so if I'm going too fast, um, you know, you can stop me and ask questions, but um, we'll hopefully come back to the main important points uh, that um, we'd like to do. So we'd like you to be able to list the available drugs and regimens for treating hepatitis C, and particularly the ones that you are likely to have available we want you to describe how well they work, so when you're counseling patients, wherever you are involved in the treatment, um, that you can talk about how well they work, and talk about it by genotype, and we'll review what that means um, for beginners, uh, for initial therapy in particular. And later cases by Dr. Franco, we'll go over those um, in more detail. If I mention treatment of acute hepatitis C, that is the one off-label use um, that, that I have. So, I've been involved in hepatitis C treatment since 2000, when um, the uh, newer interferon came out and everyone was excited for a very brief time because they realized it was kind of just as toxic as the old interferon. But um, I'm showing a picture of the Battle of Bunker Hill, um, which sort of was part of the, where I'm from, the revolution that, that birthed our, our great country. And so um, when you think about medicine and you think about sort of evolving fields, it's kind of rare when a revolution occurs, like whatever your field is. There's like something that kind of transforms what you do. And you could work in, let's say, Alzheimer's all your career for 30 years and not see a revolution. Hopefully there will be one, but here we are in the midst of a very compressed, just in a few years, revolution of hepatitis C care. And that's exciting news. That's exciting news for anyone who's been in the field since the interferon days, but in particular, um, for you guys who are just getting started, I mean, getting patients cured and taking something off a problem list, pretty much, that's a really good feeling and very gratifying. And so seeing this revolution unfold um, has been uh, remarkable to, to everyone. And um, so here we are today to um, help you along that path. And so there are goals, if you could picture it, to eliminate hepatitis C. It's doable. It's a, it's a virus that once it's gone from your body, it's truly gone from the body. And so you can actually eliminate it from a population as well. Just like we did with uh, smallpox, it's theoretically possible. Now, there's some challenges to that effect. Now, if we think about hepatitis C and, and the fact that it was just discovered in 1989, we were already kind of aware that there was some blood-borne virus out there and that it Maybe with the advent of like needle exchange and whatnot for HIV, there were some effects in reducing its incidence. But a lot of people before that, due to the silent nature of the epidemic, were infected. And we were only able to test since 1992. Um, and yes, I was born before 1992, in case you're wondering. So, um, and then 2001 is when I got started about. And, um, and then you fast forward, and we have these interferon-free regimens just in the last um, four to five years that have completely changed things. And so can we reach the goals? Uh, there's this report by the National Academies thinking about uh, how to eliminate hepatitis C 
maybe not 100%, they talk about it as eliminating it as a public health problem. So you're not thinking about all these patients that we're hearing about that you're getting ready for treatment, but also behind them are a bunch of other patients who are not yet identified, not yet screened, not yet accessing care, either due to lack of insurance or lack of connection or for a variety of other reasons. Can we reach that goal as soon as 2030, which is also kind of a World Health Organization goal? And so you are all part of this. If you think about um, the state of Alabama, I just looked up, it's about four and a half million people. The adult population, maybe one to two percent. Alabama is on the list of states that has a higher prevalence, um, 10 states compared to the rest of the country. Um, and so, you know, that's a good, what, 40,000, 50,000 people. And so you're picturing the, the few patients you have in front of you, but it's just one patient at a time to reach that goal of perhaps um, dealing with those 40,000. And if they all came to see Dr. Franco, your clinic would get mad at you, right? So we need capacity, and that's what we're here for today. What is the goal? The goal is to reduce the all-cause mortality and liver-related health consequences, and we'll talk about that briefly in a moment, including end-stage liver disease and hepatocellular carcinoma. We're not talking about just a disease that's a little bothersome or something. We're talking about some serious, life-threatening complications. And then um, what, the way you achieve that is through curing this virus, um, what's termed a sustained virologic response, which if you reach, if you test for the virus 12 weeks after the cessation of your treatment, that is what we call an SVR. And beyond that, it's very rare where you'll see the virus come back, although we will be talking about when it does, what happens. Um, and so the guidelines, which are the, um, done by the Liver Society and the IDSA and IASUSA was also involved at the very beginning, um, states that treatment is recommended for all patients with chronic hepatitis C infection. Now, there's some caveats. There are some folks who may have, like, let's say, end-stage lung cancer or something, and really hep C is not their primary concern, and you could maybe skip over treatment for those folks. But overall, it's all patients. Does it say only patients with insurance? Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to treat patients without insurance, but there are medical assistance plans to, to get those patients onto treatment. Sometimes, in some states I've heard, it's better to not have insurance because you can actually get the meds. Um, does it say fibrosis stage, that we only treat cirrhotics or patients who are reaching that end stage? No. That doesn't make any sense to like not treat a disease before you have the complications of cirrhosis. It's like saying, we won't treat your diabetes until you're getting blind or losing your kidneys. Doesn't make any sense. Does it even say like you have to like the patient? No, you treat all patients. So, I mean, we all love our patients, but you know what I mean, it's like everyone. And so, Chronic hepatitis C infection is associated with approximately how many years of lost life? If you're just talking with a patient who's making a new diagnosis, what would you tell them about the lost life expectancy? Is it on average one to five years, six to eight years, uh, 15 to 25 years? Sorry, there's a little gap there, but we can test out this audience response. So. Usually Mike brings show tunes, so we've got this. So do I stop this or? Yeah. A couple more seconds. How many are you? There's 50 registered, so. Yeah. Sampling. Okay, so you're, you're not saying it's one to five years. You're saying that it's higher. And uh, six to eight years seemed reasonable for, for many of you, and 15 to 25 for 38%. 
Well, as it turns out, hepatitis C um, takes off about 20 years of lost life. I'll show you that in a moment. Now, this is a chart looking at the number of deaths on death certificates reported. Uh, how many of you have filled out a death certificate, maybe in your training in the hospitals? But now I know many of you are in primary care and perhaps filling these less out. But um, you know, it's just sort of something you do in the middle of the night. You list a few causes and that sort of thing. Um, here you see that hepatitis C related mortality being listed exceeds that of 60 other infectious conditions. Now, not all of these infectious conditions are, are even um, life-threatening. There are things like chlamydia and whatnot. But they do include serious life-threatening things such as HIV, pneumococcus, um, tuberculosis. And you add all of that mortality together, and hep C exceeds that. And working in any ICU over the last 10 years, you see this liver-related mortality coming in and dying of um, various causes like renal failure, sepsis, bleeding. Um, and we'll go over those complications in Ken's talk. But um, this is serious stuff. And it's actually unlikely that people list hepatitis C as one of those five or six causes. They often are listing other things going on more proximal to the patient's death. And so this is likely a huge underestimate. Massachusetts, they're able to take our death registry and cross-react or cross-check it with um, the uh, hepatitis C registry, which captures every positive test, whether it's antibody or viral load in our state. And so you're able to match that. And what are you seeing here? You're seeing a mortality rate, which you know, should just steadily be increasing over time as one ages. It's one of the inevitabilities of life, right? Death uh, and taxes. But here we see this excess mortality in patients right at that age of 54, 50 to 60, et cetera. And that reflects the, the number of people who are infected with hepatitis C, the sort of so-called baby boomer population. And so rather than an expected um, life expectancy of 75 in our state, if you're hep C positive, it's 55. And there's similar data from New York City and whatnot. This isn't, I mean, it's something that could usually wait a few months, you know, as you're getting patients ready for treatment. To, you know, if they say, I'm kind of busy, maybe I can get treated after Christmas or something. It's like, you know, that's okay. But waiting years and whatnot, it doesn't make any sense. You want to treat this before these patients are in the ICU. And what does SVR or cure do for you? Um, so without SVR, this is mortality. You know, these are taking patients with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, and you just kind of, as it goes up, you watch like 30% die over 10 years. And then with SVR, you see this much lower rate. Now, patients are dying. These are mostly baby boomers in their 50s and 60s of other causes there. But if you isolate on liver-related mortality or need for liver transplantation, another sort of end-stage uh, outcome, you see this radical difference. 80 to 90% reductions in various complications, whether it's um, liver cancer, whether it's esophageal bleeding, whether it's uh, decompensated cirrhosis. That I mean, if, if anyone looks at like, I don't know, oncology survival curves or whatnot, you don't see these separations. This is incredible. You see marked differences in um, sort of reversing the natural history. Now, I mentioned we talk about genotypes, and so just wanted to introduce that concept. What this is, it's a phylogenetic tree. If you're not familiar with it, think of it like a family tree of hepatitis C, all right? They're all kind of cousins to each other. And um, some cousins are closer in the branch than other cousins. If you have a big family, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, and this is all on the same scale of, of hepatitis C on the right and hepatitis B and HIV. And you could put flu up there, too. 
the sort of different flu strains. As you know, it's kind of like different flu strains every year. And hep C just totally dwarves that. It's kind of amazing that as viruses into these different genotypes, they all kind of cause the same disease. There's a little bit of sense when patients may ask you, well, which is the worst? It used to be kind of one because that was tough to treat, but now all these treatments were pretty much designed against genotype one, so it's the most common genotype. Um, I guess on average there's some epidemiologic studies that say that three is slightly more associated with a little bit more liver disease, but that's on average. It's not like, oh, three is the worst. I wouldn't tell a patient that. The other thing that's important about genotype is that amongst young people who are acquiring the virus, largely through drug use, we're seeing genotype 3 as the second most common, and often 30% of new infections in youth can be genotype 3. Now, this is a life cycle slide. So picture the cell, the liver cell, containing the virus within it, and the virus is using the machinery of the cell to produce itself. And that's just kind of what you're seeing here. The virus enters the liver cell, and it kind of comes out. Couple messages from this. It never enters the nucleus. Unlike other viruses, HIV, chickenpox, um, herpes virus of the mouth or the genital area, we're, we're able to talk about that here, right? This is good. You guys are on the front lines for STDs treatment probably too. Um, so, so it never enters the nucleus, and that means that when you eradicate this virus, it's not deep in the DNA. So it's a true cure. Like right now, we can't cure HIV. There's one person cured in the world, we think. Um, hepatitis B, you can't cure. Hep C, it's truly out of the cell and out of the body. Now, one message for patients is that sometimes because that antibody, you know, the exposure test, stays positive, they think, oh, that test's still positive. That means I still have it. No, please distinguish that from the virus test, which is negative. If the virus test is negative, you no longer have the virus. And don't think of that exposure test as meaning that you have the hepatitis C virus. I'm sorry, I should go back. Um, and then there are three different targets that are what we're going to discuss today. The protease, the polymerase, and a protein known as NS5A involved in the assembly and release of the virus. And those three targets are what we do, and we target at least two of them to establish this cure. Just doing one alone, the virus may be able to kind of mutate around it. I already kind of showed you how diverse that virus is in trying to mutate over the centuries to reach those different genotypes. Well, even in a person, if you don't apply enough pressure on this virus, it may get around it because there's resistance virus lying under the surface. Because if I infect someone, I usually choose the person I know the best, and in this case, it's Ken Sherman. So if I infected Ken, it would sort of slowly adapt to him and sort of diversify within him and be kind of this swarm of closely related um, hepatitis C of whatever genotype I had. And it would eventually look like Ken's virus, you could tell it's the same virus. But the main point is, in that swarm, there's one in 100, one in 10 sometimes, sometimes um, one in 100,000. There's going to be underlying resistance. But the point is, if you attack it at different targets, there are other points the drugs will be sensitive, the virus will be sensitive to the other drugs. And so together, at least two of these drugs can establish cure over time. Now, we're going to apply a whole host of different drugs, and there's this little glossary here. And we've always been criticized for not explaining every one of these drugs. And if I did that, we'd be here till I don't know, late this evening if we went through all of these in detail. But the main point is you are applying it to different genotypes, and so we are still doing genotype testing. However, as you'll see, the newest regimens are pangenotypic and can cover all different genotypes. 
And so why are we even testing genotype at this point? Well, it's still required for insurance, and I still think there's value, as we'll go into later. Um, but we're no longer using pegylated interferon, ribavirin, these first-generation protease inhibitors. We are using more modern regimens. And if you look at uh, sort of what predicted success with the first regimens, which were about 90% effective, you can look at those who did not, this did not work in. And you look at certain factors that were associated with what we call relapse, or an unsuccessful treatment, and um, these were using these older regimens. Treatment experience, so if people had failed treatment with interferon before, if they had a certain genotype, or a human gene, I should say, sorry, I shouldn't use genotype there, a human gene known as IL-28B, if they're um, male versus female, if they're heavier, if they're cirrhotic, you know, the liver that's cirrhotic, um, Ken will go over, um, just may be more difficult to cure in this era. Higher viral load, all of these sort of inherently made sense, especially when you looked at interferon data where you had a 50-50 shot. Um, you know, these were all kind of already known. But the good news was that if you had two or three or four of these negative predictors, you were still had a great chance. It was really when you had a convergence of five or six of these factors that things did not quite work so well. Now, when we're going to be talking about sort of 97, 98% effective regimens, those 2% is kind of hard to figure out in those studies why they are relapsing. But um, it's possible that if you looked on everyone, that having multiple factors may still pan out. But the point is we're still achieving cure. We're overcoming these previous barriers with what I'm about to show you. So with all these combinations, you know, you can kind of mix and match from those three different classes. Oh, my, this, this is just a long list of FDA-approved treatments. But um, just have to remember, as of 2011, all we had was here. So what a revolution. It's like all of like, all those new HIV drugs all coming out in just a few years. It's really spectacular. The good news is we can kind of focus in now on just a few regimens that are of importance, which are kind of boxed out here. So just really four regimens are likely to be available to you and able to be used. And then there's another one for salvage treatment. And so one can think about like trying to treat patients um, with um, these agents. And you could look early on and see how rapidly patients may be clearing. And almost everyone, pretty much everyone, becomes negative or barely detected by week two of therapy. Quite remarkable. The point is you still need to continue the medications, and that beyond that surface, you know, there's still cells that are infected with the virus, we think. So if you stopped at two weeks, the virus is likely to come back. However, um, there's a rate of sort of eradication that happens afterwards. And then if you stop therapy a little bit too soon, maybe that virus can reestablish itself. And if it's going to come back, it's going to come back within four weeks. All right? We, we still wait till 12 to kind of establish the cure. But that's when it might come back. And it's possible that if you have, again, a multiplicity of those sort of more difficult-to-treat type of characteristics, you may end up with um, uh, you know, need for longer therapy. And there's a few couple regimens where that's the case. Each of these classes have kind of different barriers to resistance. A barrier to resistance, I, I don't know, um, you know, is if you are applying pressure on the virus and the virus may have less ability to mutate around it than uh, other viruses. And that's important, particularly when we're talking about retreating patients who did not um, uh, uh, respond to these agents. The most uh, high barrier to resistance is the cefosivir-based regimen, where you really don't see resistance afterwards. So you can treat someone with cefosivir, and you can look at the, that target, and the virus really hasn't mutated around it. 
It's, um, it's just um, relapse for other reasons. And so that's good news. And then there's variability with these other inhibitors. Um, if you, this is like five articles on one slide, but talking about the, sort of the, the, um, what was available to us in terms of um, lodipasvir, sofosvir, um, and this triple regimen, which is not used as much now, 95% cure on average for genotype 1. And that was kind of where we were just a couple years ago, offering great hope for those with genotype 1. Now, for genotypes 2 and 3, there were some options. Uh, 2 in particular, pretty good. 3, a little bit less good. But um, what we're reaching now are, are even higher cure rates. So this is uh, uh, one of the regimens, Elvisir-Grisoprevir, um, which uh, generally spares ribavirin. And also, um, for 12 weeks, was able to cure genotypes 1 and 4. And that's where it's approved. Uh, very high rates of um, cure. For this, cirrhosis didn't really matter So at the very beginning. So you'll see other regimens where this is not the case. But cirrhosis was not the main um, issue with this regimen. Um, you'll see there's, there's resistance that may be an issue there. This option is great for kidney disease. And we'll go over that later in a case. So patients with advanced kidney disease used to have difficulties um, receiving ribavirin as well as some of the other agents. And now we're seeing cure rates of close to 100% in these agents. And then um, with the first generation, lodipasvir, umbidasvir, decladasvir of the NS5A target, you can see here that you can have resistance mutations shown at the top. If you're familiar with HIV, you know that's a protein, uh, that's an amino acid level change. Let's say Y93, it changes from the Y to an H, and that's just the virus um, coding. And that mutation produced the resistance in vitro. Fortunately, some of these newer um, next generations can overcome some of these resistance mutations. And that's a concept similar to HIV, where we have these newer and newer agents. And so when you have a high threshold, such as um, uh, you know, belpatasvir or piprandasvir or whatnot, combined with that excellent, in this case, sofosvir, combined with another agent with a high barrier to resistance, here we go with cure rates that can then cure all different genotypes. And this is um, really a great advance to have a pan-genotypic regimen. It greatly simplifies um, sort of choices to be made. And it now expands from what I told you about genotypes 1 and 4 to now genotypes 2 and 3. So um, let's talk about glucapavir, piperantesvir. And this is a little bit of like a pre-question, so because I haven't gone over it yet. But what's true about this new regimen? Um, GP, we'll call it that for short. It's a tongue twister otherwise. So most patients will receive 12 weeks of this medication. It is a single daily dose pill. It should not be used for genotype 4 patients. It should not be used for CKD4-5 patients. And it has demonstrated safety for decompensated patients. Wait, there's something wrong with this. Oh, no, no, it's, it's correct. Sorry. Yeah, I have it right. Just blame, blame the cold. I came from a cold climate. All right, so we got up to 20 answers. All right, most patients will receive 12 weeks. Well, I was just telling you about these great 12-week regimens, so that's not a surprising answer. But it turns out that the correct answer is five, because um, this is something that for decompensated patients you want to avoid, and several of you caught up in that. So glucapavir is not a one-pill-once-a-day regimen. It is once a day, but it actually comes in these little boxes, and it's three pills once a day taken with food. And this is the literal box that the patient will be holding. 
And I think it's good to bring patients in and say, do you take all three? It says it right there, but to make sure that they're taking this correctly. Because many of what I told you about soft, soft belpatasvir, ledipasvir, sofosvir, that's all in one pill once a day, and this is not. Um, but it's extremely effective. I was showing you 95% earlier. Here we're seeing 98, 99, 100% in this intention to treat um, analysis of patients who are both mono-infected, meaning without HIV, or co-infected with HIV. And um, we'll hear more about co-infection in a moment. And even treating patients who were sofosivir experienced excellent results. Remember, sofosivir is a polymerase inhibitor. What we have here are two classes from a different, um, uh, two agents from different classes and able to overcome that. Um, Dr. Franco will go over some detailed drug interactions, but if you forget anything, if you forget any of those details, you can go to this website. So I show you Google. Um, if you type in Liverpool, I mean Liverpool, how great is that for remembering this? Liver, right? Hep C, got it? Everyone with me? Liverpool Hep C, you get to this interaction tracker, all right? And I use this almost on a daily basis in the clinic. You type in the medication. I'm sorry, it's a little small for you in the back, but it, here we, you have your sofosivir, velpatasvir. You can type in a co-medication. I'm typing in omeprazole, and it tells you about the potential interaction and gives you more details as to how it can be managed. Really quite wonderful. wonderful. And um, here I am putting in, I think, uh, yeah, amiodarone. Don't do that. Sofosivir and amiodarone will result in this do not co-administer. So, I mean, this is very helpful, and drug interactions are overall very manageable, but there are a few that you really do need to watch, and so this is one of the key medical components of treatment, uh, is making sure you, you don't forget drug interactions. So, um, Mike, if he talks about HIV, um, would give you the sort of menu of choices from different classes of, you know, in that case, protease inhibitors, integrase inhibitors, uh, if, you, if you've been doing HIV treatment, and you kind of pick from a menu from different classes, and that's not really how hep C works, okay? So this says no alcohol will be served. We usually tell patients not to drink alcohol while in therapy. It's kind of like the liver's dealing with curing this virus. I mean, um, does a drink or two hurt? I don't know the answer, but in the end, that's what we counsel. And then, um, you know, ribavirin with some of these older regimens may have been co-administered, but nowadays we're not seeing ribavirin. Uh, we're seeing, you know, some of these agents are no longer available. It's really like a fixed menu where things come together, and if you choose one, you got to go with the other because they come in different, uh, they come in the same pill. And so um, this is really kind of your menu of choices, but uh, in the end, um, what are we really facing? We're facing, for patients, you know, I, I told you in like a few minutes how to choose between these agents, and in reality, it's your insurance who might be choosing for you. But these barriers, genotype, gone away, high viral loads, I mean, each of these individually is probably not much of an issue. So, you know, these things that we used to worry about, HIV, definitely not an issue. Even good options for kidney disease, which I briefly showed you. Side effects are very few. I didn't show you side effect data, but almost nobody, one in a thousand in the clinical trial stopped due to a serious adverse event related to the medication. The, these are the real barriers. Think about your patients, and um, they're still, it's not about the medications, it's about sort of the additional factors that come with patients, right? There's stigma to the disease. Do they want to get tested and know about it? Do they want to um, talk about this with their providers and get tested um, and treated? Um, a lot have heard that interferon was bad, and so why come forward for treatment now? They haven't seen those commercials on TV. 
um, showing you people walking through the woods and getting cured for their hep C. Um, you've seen those commercials? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, other comorbidities and other issues that come with unstable housing, imprisonment, these get in the way of hepatitis C treatment. And then there are structural issues. Now, we're addressing the, the, the scarcity of providers today in this workshop. So each of you, one patient at a time, can move forward. And we're trying to equip all of you with provider knowledge so you can counsel patients through the treatment because um, uh, motivated patients are e more easily get through this than patients who are just kind of handed pills, right? And then access restrictions. Um, that's such a major problem. I, I, um, I assume there have been some in Alabama over the years, and we'll talk more about that later. And hepatitis C care is a little bit more about than just giving the drugs. There's giving immunizations. There's counseling about preventing transmission. There's making sure they don't have advanced fibrosis. All of these are vitally important. And so um, I'd uh, remind you that doing uh, and talking about these issues, uh, and we'll go over that today, um, is also a part of hepatitis C care, not just the medications. And so if we're going to treat, we really need to screen in the first place, right? Let's say this is a cascade of care, so to speak. So patients, all of whom were infected, a proportion got screened, a portion got the follow-up testing, a portion linked to care. So you could treat all the people in front of you who are already identified, and you're not having a major impact on this elimination goal, right? So we totaled up all the numbers in the room of the people you're considering for treatment or have treated, and we're not at 40,000 or 50,000. So we have to work upstream, and we have to educate our colleagues to screen more, to say, hey, they're a good treatment. You know, maybe be more aggressive about screening to get patients into care and treat. So improving the cascade is really critical. And so it goes beyond the medications. Because if you really think about it, that's where the bottleneck is. It's before they get to you. OK, so uh, increased screening will be critical. We'll talk about groups at risk in more detail, particularly MSM, uh, men who have sex with men, and people who inject drugs. Uh, fibrosis staging, Ken will go over. We'll, treatment is simplifying. All those dizzying choices I was showing you, we could really focus in on just a few and no interferon, and now pretty much no ribavirin, and we should be treating all hep C. So I'll stop there. No, no I ran a little bit over. Uh, any questions at this time? Yes. So that, this is a constant comment and feedback. It's like, why don't you use the freaking brand name? Um, sorry to use that term. That's, that's OK, freaking. All right. So um, I, you know, uh, it's, it's a CME thing where um, uh, we're supposed to use, as, as teachers of this, the, um, the generic names. Uh, if it's acceptable, like we could say the drug that begins with H or something. Uh, and maybe that'll help out a little bit uh, to keep things straight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for communication and teaching purposes, I fully agree that if I used the brand names, that would have been a much easier talk to follow. But it is a rule that, that we're trying to follow here and minimize. Yes, that's true. All right, any other feedback before we dive into some case uh, to the next talk about hepatology?